Well, we are going to get started, and we are going to go before the Lord in prayer and uh, to prepare our hearts for this lesson, which is going to be, I promise in advance, a little easier to wrap your head around than the complicated machinations of last week, uh, which I take full responsibility for not being more clear and more uh, systematic in my presentation. So, this will be a little easier. I hope we're going to ask God to do that for us. So, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for this night. We thank you, Lord, that people are taking time out of their life on a Monday in the summer to learn about church history. And God, I am very thankful for people willing to do that. And I ask that you would help us to hear and to understand and to grow in our knowledge of what has come before. And Lord, help us to be better as a result and help us live lives of gratitude for what you've done throughout history. Lord, we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, following along, turning point number four, uh, we are just brief disclaimer again, as always, there's so much um, that we are skipping. We are skipping massive quantities of uh, church history, events, personalities, really important people, really important things, really important developments. Um, the idea of Mark Knoll's book is, of course, to focus on what he considered to be some of the most significant turning points throughout history, uh, the history of the church. And so this one was really interesting as a turning point because it's really a thousand year or so period that chapter four is dealing with, and that is the influence of something called monasticism. So let me read you, uh, you've got it here in front of you on your outline, uh, straight from the beginning of the chapter. The rise of monasticism was, after Christ's commission to his disciples, the most important and in many ways the most beneficial institutional event in the history of Christianity. Now that is a wild statement. That is a lot uh, for him to prove to us. And that's what authors are doing. Um, I think when I read the chapter, um, you, you do gain more of an appreciation for what monasticism or those who live in monasteries, uh, monks, what that life was like. I've got a definition for you. It's a very basic definition of what monasticism is. Monasticism is a life that's separated from the world while following a rule of discipline and isolation or in community. It is kind of hard to strictly define monasticism or living life in a monastery because some of the monks uh, did not live in a monastery. Some of them lived out in the desert. There are wild extremes that we're just not going to have time to go into, but there are some really interesting literature about some of the most extreme behavior of Christians seeking to be closer to God and trying to do so through aesthetic practices. Um, and we're going to go over at least, we're going to mention some of it. The very first monk that we know about, and a monk is somebody who has dedicated their life to this life of monasticism, very first monk that we know about is Antony 
out of Egypt. Um, he had heard a sermon where Jesus talks about selling your goods uh, to the poor and following Jesus. He had just inherited by the death of his parents um, a lot of land. And he took that literally, sold the land, moved out into the desert. Um, Athanasius popularized Anthony by, um, by writing about him in an approving way and giving basically a seal of approval on what he did. And this, this is a very early period. The church was still being persecuted in AD 270. So, but he, in these early, early years of the church, people are finding themselves drawn to this idea of isolation and wilderness. Um, we're going to explain why, uh, according to Mark Noel, we think that is. The most important, the most influential contributor to, to monasticism was Benedict of Nursia. That's a place in Italy. He wrote a really famous book called Rule, and the rule was about 80 pages uh, in the English translation, and it's simply a list of rules. I, re I read some of uh, the rule. I don't know. I would encourage you to Google it and read some of it. If you've ever been to the swimming pool, and up on the wall is the sign that's got all the rules, right? When you start reading the rules, you are tempted to think perhaps that the idea of coming to the swimming pool is to do nothing but to sit there and not look at each other. Has anybody ever felt like that? No running, no splashing, no yelling, no clapping, no nothing. No food, nothing. So that's, uh, now that is giving a bad impression of Benedict's rule because to be fair, um, a lot of what he put in there was really, really um, well done. It was very organized, it was systematic. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, that in just a little bit, a little bit more. But he wrote that in uh, 5:30, and the reason Mark Knoll is saying that this is super important is his little book on on how to live a monastic life, a life of of a monk, the life of dedication to Christ, totally forsaking everything except Jesus. the The way to do this, that book just absolutely influenced everybody who did it. Um, there were other orders of monks. Uh, Augustine had an order. Um, there's, there's a lot of them. But they were all pivotally influenced by uh, Benedict. So here's the other thing that's interesting that I found in, in the book is we don't know much about him. What we know about him is written by uh, Pope Gregory, and that's it. And uh, Mark, there's several. There was a historian he quotes in here, and I don't have it here in your notes, but uh, a historian who said there has never been another character in church history that we know so little about that had such a profound effect on the world. So it's really it's that it's really interesting how God did use. And this is I'm inserting some opinion here that God did use uh, people doing things that I would not consider the right way to live our life. We'll get to that at the very end. Okay, so I'm jumping ahead. The, the next section here is motives, circumstances that led to monasticism. Or I, I know that word, it just sounds really fancy. Every time I say it, just think monastery, living in a monastery, living this life uh, separated um, and following a discipline 
uh, a disciplined rule of living. According to Mark Knoll, the likely draw of monasticism in the 4th and 5th century in particular, and that's where Benedict was, is a direct result of the church's great societal success after Constantine. What does that mean? That means, as we talked about during the Council of Nicaea discussion, that after AD 325, no more major persecutions are happening in the Roman Empire. Christianity goes from being um, kicked around, ugly, uh, neglected, um, pushed around group of people to this is now the most influential group in the empire. Emperors are now Christian. And then Theodosius in 381 declares Christianity to be the religion of the state. So by the time we go another couple hundred years into uh, the time that Benedict wrote his rule, the, uh, the, the society of the empire has totally changed. It's Christian. Now, in some places, it's Christian in name only, um, but it's Christian. And that has a radical impact. I want you to think, um, I want you to think what it would be like if all of a sudden another religion in America so dominate, well, in a sense you can't imagine this because secularism is actually doing it, but imagine a totally separate religion, like Islam, for example. Uh, imagine that just so taking over society that the president is Muslim and nobody in the country would even remotely think that it would be possible for another president to not be Muslim. And it would not be possible for you to be a governor of a state unless you were Muslim. And it wouldn't be possible to be a mayor unless you were a Muslim. It wouldn't be possible to be a president of the PTA unless you were a Muslim. Every vestige of society is now turned totally different than what you are accustomed to, and everyone is Muslim. That is what happened, except it happened with Christianity in the Roman Empire, and now all, all the prestige and all of the positions of power and everything are influenced by Christianity. So, no more persecution. Christian professionalism began to offer societal preferment. Um, people are moving more and more out of paganism, more and more out of living that way, and they're living, at least in name only, <laughs> at least in name only, they're living as Christians. And uh, stability, power, and opportunity for wealth, what this actually does is create a hunger in people for real Christianity. Now, I think every one of us in here can relate to this. The vision of our church has been, from day one, the very first advertisement we ever made as a church was, in a town full of churches, we know you've heard about Jesus, but have you met him? Now, that was a little arrogant, probably, the way it was worded. Um, like, Celebration Church was the key for you to unlock the mysteries of knowing Jesus. But I was 23, I hope everybody will forgive me. But my, my thought process was very much like the way Mark Knoll describes the mindset of people that were looking at everybody around me as Christian, kind of. Everybody around me claims Christianity, but I know what he's like at home. Right? 
This is really relevant then. And so this is the environment, and more and more, more so than in our country, because our country with freedom of religion, which was what Rome had, but with Christianity being the official religion, it became incumbent upon you to be a Christian if you wanted to get anywhere in life. So it creates a disingenuous Christian experience. So people are hungering for something real. I don't know if that sounds familiar, but it's on our signs out here. So that hunger for something real began to express itself in a desire to return to the life of Christianity when people were being killed and martyred. That sounds weird, but it's not weird. I am telling you, I have felt the draw and the appeal. I have many times looked at my wife and said, let's just go to a country and preach the gospel until somebody kills us in an area where nobody likes Christians. Because there's something appealing about the cut and dryness of that. There, there isn't any more concern about which app is coolest on your phone for uh, which theology app or which social media presence or all of the things that we are caught up in in our life in a free and blessed nation. Um, are absent. I was telling, I don't remember who I was telling the story to, but Pastor Brian Petrie um, in, uh, in the Brooklyn Tabernacle, he had told me a couple years ago that he was in uh, Ethiopia talking to some pastors that were going into a hostile area of Ethiopia and hostile because it was uh, 99% more on the radical end of Islam. Uh, and they knew that they were going in there with their wives. These guys were young. They were in their 30s. They had young children. They were going into this area to preach the gospel, plant a church, knowing they would die. Zero questions asked. Unless God preserved them in a miraculous way, they were headed to their death within five to ten years. They, they didn't sound the way he told the story that they would make it that long. So what would you do if someone shared that with you? You would be like, oh my gosh. And so Pastor Brian Petrie says, I'm going to pray for you. And they looked at him and said, we appreciate that, but we are going to pray for you because you have to go back to America with a Starbucks on every corner and McDonald's around every turn and temptation to the flesh and lethargy and apathy and indifference everywhere you go you're the one that needs prayed for. Anyway, because, because when you go into a persecuted environment, there is no more fluff. You either are in unto death or you bail out. There isn't an in-between ground in those areas. And so what Mark Knoll is saying is this wasn't an environment of persecution anymore. It's an environment of prestige and more ease. Now, this era was not easy. They did not have air conditioning. They did not have antibiotics. They did not have processed foods. They did. They worried every second of every day for everything. However, they began to want something deeper. And this is what drove people to the desert. This is what drove people 
to do crazy things like starve themselves or bury themselves in the sand up to their neck so the sun would scorch their heads or sleep with uh, garments on that had nettles in them. Briars, really, really sharp, terrible. So you make briar uh, nettle underwear and sleep in them in the cold to punish your body. Punish it. Now, not all monks did this, okay? That's why I want to be careful and not spend all my time there. But there were people that they wanted something deeper, and the flesh was the enemy, and the desires of the flesh were the enemy, so we're going to literally, physically punish the flesh. That's how we're going to put it under. There's an appeal in religions to do this. It is odd what humans try to answer uh, what God clearly spells out in His Word. Humans want to answer instead with God offers grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome, and we instead want to sweat and earn it and grit our teeth and prove it, and we're going we're gonna to punish ourselves. So, Nothing about this is shocking to me when I, when I read this chapter that what was happening was people were looking for spiritual reality. In order to, this is Mark Noll, in order to save critical Christian ideals such as self-sacrifice and humility, as well as to pr- promote Christian disciplines like prayer and study of the scriptures, the monks became the conscience of Christendom. It's really interesting. These guys were not all sleeping in briar underwear, okay? That, I don't want to give that impression. Some of them were. A lot of them were not. Some of them were clearly crazy, and a lot of them were not. The, a lot of the Benedictine monks, as we're going to find out, became the driving missionary force that spread the gospel. St. Patrick, anybody heard of him? He was a monk. What did he do? He went into Ireland and established a monastery and started preaching the gospel, and lots of people get saved. Do you know what kind of people were there? Pagan, druid-worshipping, demon-loving people, and he goes in there with the gospel of Christ. So there's, there's just some really... There's, it's all over the place, and Mark Knoll makes it clear that he is only providing the skimming of the surface of a sketch. For some of you uh, younger, have college in front of you, something that may be really fascinating for you to do is spend time studying some of these historical elements and what went on, because you have no end of papers you could write and information you could find, because there's I'm so proud of all the people under the age of 20 that are in here. That's really cool. Well, whether they let you or not, you can do it. Here's some of the inner motivations that were going on, according to Mark Knoll, uh, that really drove uh, monasticism and what they were trying to do. There was a commitment to scripture. I'm going to we're going to look at this little the little chart I gave you in a second. A real commitment to scripture and not to the reading of it, to the memorization of it, to the study of it, to the copying of it out, which was important, but also to the living it. To the living it out. If Jesus said to uh, sell your goods and give them to the poor, they took that literally. If Jesus said that we're supposed to be visiting uh, those in prison and the sick, they're going to do that. They're going to do the Word of God and as much and as well as they knew how. Now, some of their interpretations of doing the Word of God I completely disagree with. Like, 
John the Baptist didn't have a wife. Jesus didn't have a wife. And Paul said that uh, it would be better to remain unmarried even as himself. And they conclude that in order to truly be spiritual, we can't have no wife. Um, whereas uh, the scripture also teaches about he who finds a wife finds a good thing, the blessing that comes through marriage, and the fruitfulness, obviously, and the offspring, children, that comes out of marriage. So there's, there's a lot there. I'm not going to go into all that. But they had a radical commitment to Scripture. Ken. So some of the monastic, so for those listening at home, uh, the monastic abuses that Mark Noel, I think, is mentioning, and he doesn't, some of the stuff I was mentioning where the um, aestheticism had went too far and radicalized people, but also um, he he does mention in here how these different monasteries, that the abbot, which was the leader over the monastery, could become incredibly powerful and influential, even more so than some of the local bishops. So then there's political structure fighting back and forth between that, those two groups. But also, lots of money can come in. As people are giving donations to the work of the monastery, there can be corruption because of the money that's coming in, and they're all eating like gruel and oatmeal and drinking water, there, there's not a lot of overhead cost uh, going on. And so the, the wealth of the place, so throughout history, some of the abuse or sexual deviancy that could be going on, there are different things, but he doesn't go into it here. I, I know from reading other things that, that it, and he all he does is mention the roller coaster. The roller coaster is... Um, some of these monasteries and some of these groups, because people are involved, the the worship, the scripture, the prayers all become mechanical, and their hearts drift from God, and they fall into various sins, either of pride or greed or money or sexual perversion, different things going on like that, that requires a revival just like in churches, just like in country. So I think that is what he's alluding to. And there is a ton of information you can go find um, on on some of that. I know uh, Philip Schaff wrote a book. A, a big His history is one that I keep running into, which I'd like to buy. But I think it's like eight to ten volumes, and it's probably the opposite of cheap. But um, there's a lot of information we... we, we the information's out there about what he's referring to. He just did not give a lot of detail other than to say those abuses required revival and repentance, which is what happens in the book of Judges. It's what happens in the life of the church, and it happened in the monastic life as well. Um, I've already mentioned some of this. Uh, some of the inner motivations for becoming a monk at this time in the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th century uh, was the commitment to pure spirituality. I mentioned something specifically about Tertullian. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of this because these stages that Tertullian puts forward are really interesting. Where are we at here? In the West, 
This is on page 84, second paragraph, second sentence. Um, in the West, where practical solutions were more important than theological speculation, that's the way they were in the East, that's actually going to be a big deal later on, the standard view of reconciliation with God exerted considerable influence on how the Bible was read. That view was being systematized by Tertullian at the end of the second century in a way that favored what would later emerge as monastic spirituality. So Tertullian, at the end of the second century, has some ideas about what you need to do to be reconciled to God, and he's bringing this up because the doctrine of justification by faith alone is going to uh, really, it's going to be the linchpin of the Reformation, and the reason for that is in these early days, and I don't think Tertullian meant for this to happen, but they planted the seeds of a works-based salvation. So here's, here's what goes on here. Um, Tertullian held that the one who sought reconciliation needed to pass through distinct stages, penitence or active sorrow for sin, mortification, deadening of the flesh through aesthetic practices. So you got some stuff you got to do. Um, merit, securing of the right to be rewarded by God, and satisfaction. Reparation by alms, fasting, or other good works for the damage done to God's holiness. So, in other words, if you're going to be reconciled to God, you got some stuff you need to do. There's going to be some fasting. There's going to be some uh, serious outward there's going to be multiple stages here. In other words, it's not just going to be, oh, Jesus, forgive me. Thanks, buddy. Uh, which I would disagree with that too. Um, but that they were seeking ways to systematize how we should go about living our life for Christ. And this is some of the early uh, examples of that. By the time Tertullian's the end of the second century, you go a couple hundred years later into the 5th century, and um, that gets even more systematized into the practice of monastic life. There was a commitment to chastity. I've talked about this already. They believed that in the warfare, and there was a lot of emphasis on spiritual warfare with the devil. Uh, I, I wrote out in a, one of the paragraphs here, this sounds like charismatic stuff, um, but there was a real emphasis on spiritual warfare, but the way that they didn't they didn't yell and scream at the devil, well, Martin Luther did later, years later. I'm sure there were people who did, but they um, thought you had to combat the flesh because that was the way the devil was coming into the life of Christians. And one of the best ways for a man in particular to combat the flesh is just stay away from ladies. Women? are the problem. Well, that's not true. But that's this idea of no marriage, no sex, no, no, no. It's bad. Anything uh, like that that uh, involves the pleasure of the flesh of any kind, um, no. Absolutely not. And uh, they felt that that was a way to combat the temptations of the flesh. Um, I could go on on that, but I won't. Uh, and then, of course, there were part of the inner motivations and 
one of the great contributions of the monastic life was a commitment to prayer. And they did systemize that, uh, which is really interesting. Next page. The rule of Benedict. I've already mentioned him quite a bit. Uh, very influential over a thousand years. His rule is still being used today. It's a mixture of spiritual and physical disciplines that regulated every hour of the day. And it's also a practical wisdom book, so to speak, for how people are to live together. It is, according to Mark Knoll, not for the lazy or the weak at heart. Uh, you are, if you were in a monastery, you were going to work. Your hands would have calluses. You were going to do physical labor, and you were going to do it humbly, and you were going to do it in a way that served others, and you were going to do it every single day. Um, and they've got it all spelled out. We're going to look at that in just a second. The pattern established by Benedict's rule came to be applied wide, widely and with great effect. For men and women, by the way, there were women monasteries, which um, I think there's this thing off in the future called nuns. Uh, but this is, that's, that's not the same thing here. But uh, in fact... According to Mark Knoll, this, in this time of human history where women were frequently not taught to read, uh, the church had this open door in a way for women to uh, not only learn to read and to be educated and to be a part of, uh, of that world that had been regulated to men, but they also were encouraged to share their thoughts on what they were reading and for them to write. And there's there's this whole section um, that could be explored, and this would be another thing, young people, because every one of the young folks in here are girls. If you would, that would be a really interesting thing to explore uh, in terms of deeper study, because it's re it was really interesting. He actually has uh, in the chapter several things um, that women contributed uh, to to the monastic life. Um, Okay, for men and women in all parts of Europe and beyond, through times of monastic flourishing and periods of monastic decay, it remained, Benedict's rule remained a beacon pointing back to the disciplined stability of a spiritual ideal and forward towards growth into eternal blessedness. They really did think they were preparing themselves for heaven, and that really is what it was in the, in the way that they were viewing it. So everybody go to this page here, the colorful page um, this is really fun. This is actually from a Benedictine mo monastic society right now. You can go to this website right now and sign up to be a monk. <laughs> uh, well, you can learn more about it. They, they don't just accept anybody. Um, and it's all Catholic. So it's in a completely different theological universe than where we are. However, uh, I know a guy who is, and I called him before this class, and I did, wasn't able to touch base with him, but I know a guy who has entered into monastic living. Um, really interesting guy, talk to him all the time at work, uh, have really long, we always had really long conversations about scripture. Um, obviously, we disagreed on various things. I'm Protestant, he's Catholic. But uh, he's been drawn to this, and um, 
really interesting to know that I know a guy that is entering into this world. But this is kind of the way it just breaks down what a monk's day looks like. Um, and it's similar. It's, it's following Benedict's rule. So 5.40 a.m., you get up. I like how they got that guy at a, at a coffee pot. So uh, that's awesome. 6 a.m., you're in the vigils. You are, it's, there's songs and worship. By seven, uh, or excuse me, by 6.45, there is study, the Lectio Divina, or Divina. Don't exactly know what they're doing there other than study. It's 7.15, you're back in the sanctuary. Uh, at 7.45, you eat breakfast. 8.30, there's work of some kind. 11.45, you're having the Eucharist or the Mass. Um, and then it, it, you're going to have to do this with your paper because uh, then they go to lunch, they got daily prayer, they're working. You see these guys out in the garden. That's a big part of what was going on years ago, and they still do it today. Uh, providing food for the monastery and for the less fortunate that are around them. Um, Vespers, how many of you have heard of Vespers? Uh, Vespers at 515, uh, there's more time for study at 545, then you eat, then there's recreation, which is all these cheerful guys. I, lo I love the fact that they're laughing there. Uh, you have an image in your mind maybe of sour-faced, but that's not what they're doing. Um, and then they have compline at the end of the day, and then they typically go to bed. In the book, um, when you look at the rule of Benedict, um, it's a little different because they have something at midnight called matins where you get up at midnight and pray again. All of this is prayer and scripture and study and devotion and worship and scripture and study and devotion, and work, and that's, that's the, that is the rhythm of your life. The, the way that Benedict's rule worked, they, they, they would have younger, they, they would try to get as many guys into one room as they could, simple bedding, they slept in the same rooms, they did not allow the younger men to all group together and the older men to group together, they mixed everybody up, uh, they wanted the wisdom of the older men to be an influence on the younger men. Uh, also, he said something, I should have wrote this down specifically, but uh, he, Benedict talks about um, it also spurs people to get moving when the bell rings for you to be up at midnight. We don't want you sitting on the edge of the bed with your head down, rubbing your eyes, trying to wake up. You get up and you go. Um, and uh, you get in, into the chapel. Um, you, you, you got, we got stuff to do because... Because if we allow them to have idle, idleness, they'll be sleepy and they make excuses. That's what Benedict says. So it's just, it's a very disciplined and strict life um, that they're living. Uh, and, it's, and it is, uh, in its purest form, it's meant to be a way to grow closer to Christ and to be honoring to Him. That's what it's meant to be. Let's go over... And again, let me just let me say this again. We are skipping all kinds of stuff. We are skipping all kinds of people. We are skipping all kinds of events because we're covering a thousand years here. Um, we're going to circle back uh, in some of these other turning points. I just want you to know this is a really big, broad overview uh, of why there were why monasteries and monks 
were such an influential force over centuries of Christianity. A millennium of strong influence. A thousand years is a long time to have uh, the influence that monks did. So, one of the uh, one of the points in the book uh, from Mark Knoll is breaking up two 500-year periods to kind of get our head around what was going on and the influence of, of monasticism. So, from 500 to 1,000, the idea was to get barbarians and pagans saved. That's what we're out here to do. And then from 1,000 to 1,500, the idea is get nominal European Christians serious. So the first thrust of the effort uh, for 500 years that the that monks and monasteries and the people living this life were all about was spreading the gospel in the pagan areas. So think, uh, I've already mentioned St. Patrick in Ireland. They were used as anchor points for the gospel to be preached. Boniface in the 8th century, he established an incredibly influential work in Germany. Um, there was a, a monastery there. Cyril and Method, Methodius, he, they did the same thing in the modern-day Czech Republic. They translated the scripture into the Slavic languages. The, the monasteries did works of education. They did works of service. Um, they they did work of they did the work of missionaries. They went into these areas. They set down roots. They start farming. They start helping. They were welcoming. They were loving. They were simple. That was the ideal. That's that was. Uh, and once they started gaining influence, that's when corruption can come in, and then they have to go through the cycle of repentance and revival and all that. Um. Here's a, another quote from Mark Knoll. For a monastery to be established in a pagan area allowed the local population to see the application of Christianity to daily existence as monks tilled the soil, welcomed visitors, carried out the offices of study and daily prayer. They lived their lives in simplicity in front of the world around them, and because they were solely dedicated to a life lived for Jesus, it influenced those pagans around them. That really, if you really step back and look at it from a broad point of view, is what each of our individual families are supposed to be doing. That's really the idea. Now, the next 500 years, from 1,000 to 1,500, um, the idea is to get nominal. You know what nominal means. It means in name only. That's, that's the easiest way to think of it. Nominal Christians are Christians who say they're Christians, don't really live like Christians. And as that's exactly what had went on throughout all of Europe, especially in the Middle Ages. Everybody's a Christian, but not really. <laughs> not, not, not really a Christian. So the monks and the monasteries, their goal was, let's get people serious about their walk with God. So, uh, mendicant friars, that's another, you, everybody remembers Friar Tuck, right? Friar Tuck, Robin Hood, a traveling friar who was trained to preach and preach to people who claimed to be Christians to excite them, uh, to motivate them 
to live lives that were wholly um, devoted to God. That's also where the Franciscans uh, had a large impact. You've probably heard of the Franciscan monks. There's a lot of stuff here. Don't have time to go into all of it, but that is what they were doing uh, in that next 500-year period. So, concerns and implications. These two questions are straight out of the book from Mark Knoll. Does aesthetic privation of the body affect the true seat of sinfulness? That's a fancy way of saying, does depriving yourself of wife, depriving yourself of children, depriving yourself of common comforts, depriving yourself in some extreme cases of warmth and uh, comforts of any kind, where some of them got more and more extreme, does, does that kind of thing actually work against the temptation of the flesh? Does that really work and affect the true seat of our sinfulness, which is, according to the Bible, we are born into sin, and then after we're born again, we still have sinful desires because of the flesh. Does, it, does punishing yourself or denying yourself comforts, does that really do anything? I would say no. And here's why I would say no. I, I, this is not in the book but Mark Knoll brings this up in the last couple pages. This is Colossians chapter 2. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So specifically some of the Jewish uh, stuff that the church was dealing with. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died in the, to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch, referring to things that all perish when they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism. That is, that fancy word means the denial of pleasures and comforts. And severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. To me, that verse just absolutely answers the question. Um, denying yourself a nice, comfortable sweater in the winter and wearing a t-shirt and standing outside in the cold for as long as you can stand it to punish your flesh, to, to put it down, that is of no value. But it seems like it is. Right? Like, I'm really denying my flesh now. I remember a kid at youth camp telling everybody that God told him that we needed to pray on our knees because it's summertime and it's everybody's wearing shorts and we needed to be on the concrete, not smooth concrete, 
but rough outside concrete. You needed to be on your knees praying because it hurt more. A little 14-year-old kid figured out the driving force behind aestheticism. There is, a, there is a natural thing in all of us that says, in one way, shape, or form, we like to punish ourselves in a way to prove how serious we are. And what Paul is saying here is, these things appear to have a value, but they don't have any value. What, what actually has value is holding fast to the head, Jesus Christ. Holding fast to Him and being nourished by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Growing up, this, the whole, this whole section here in Colossians really answers the question, setting our mind and our affections on things above, not on things on the earth, where Christ is, where our life is, because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That, that's where the value is for us, not self-imposed aestheticism. Not everything the monks did was extreme, but the seedbed behind a lot of the thinking was um, a rigorous denial of the self to an extreme that I think was unhealthy. Because the Bible also says God gave us all things richly to enjoy. Now there's, there's another side to that. It's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, the other side of that coin is, well, if he gave us all things richly to enjoy, then we need to have Cadillacs and private airplanes. Please send me an offering so I can have one. Um, we need to have, God wants you happy and healthy and rich and healed all the time, everything great. Uh, and then you die in your sleep and go straight to heaven where it's even more great. That's the way it's supposed to work. That is not what I believe you see in the Bible at all. So there's extremes on either side. But when we're talking about monasticism and the monks, I think Colossians answers the question. The, the way that we deal with sin is the word of God, the grace of God, and relying on the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Question number two, is it necessary to utterly withdraw from the world as monks often did? Now, on one hand, they were a driving force for missionary work, but on another hand, a lot of them totally cut themselves off from the rest of the world. There is a modern day version of this, and it's the Amish. And I love their food. Love interacting with them on that level. But they have totally cut themselves off from the world. In a way, there's a lot to the Amish that is appealing. Has anybody ever said, I'm just going to become Amish and forget this nonsense? Has anybody ever said that? I've said that. Jennifer and I are going to Amish country in a couple weeks for our anniversary. Um, we love it there. We have food all stocked up in our house right now from Amish country. There are candles burning in the living room, probably as we speak, that we got from Amish country. So we like it there. But what, what have they done? They've withdrawn themselves in what I would consider an unhealthy way. Because, and we read this a couple weeks ago, Mark chapter 2, Jesus is reclining at table in Matthew's house with many tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus did not go away from them. He mingled with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well, I have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm going to eat and talk and be with these people. Now, I preached my sermon about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but we should be as salt and as light in the world. We've got to go into work, neighborhoods, jobs, life, and live our lives for Christ in front of these people. The very best of monasticism, like Patrick in Ireland, that seems to me what he was doing. And the the monastery becomes a place of hope. In other places, it becomes a fortress to keep the world out. And it's us four and no more behind closed doors. So the concerns that I think we can have from church history here is that you can see the positive that that happened with monks, but you can also see some of the not-so-positive things. Um, of course, 2,000 years from now, they're going to look back on American Christianity and probably say the same thing. Uh, if the Lord were to tarry, they'll look back and say, here's the good stuff and here's the bad stuff. So none of us are perfect. So I don't want to look back with too critical of an eye. Um, they, According to Mark Knoll, they preserved what was most noble and what was most uh, precious in the holiness of God over a thousand year period. They were the anchor that kept Christianity rooted to a commitment to living humbly and self-sacrificially towards God because the power trips that begin to happen in the Christian world we're going to talk about in more detail next time with Charlemagne and some other stuff as we go. This one was easier than Chalcedon, right? Okay. Lee. Oh, no, Janet. We'll, we'll let Janet go first. Right. Yes. Yes. Yes, that is true. And that, yes. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah. Me either. Lee? That's a good observation. That's from the 33 series, by the way. There's there's just different different ways you look at things and um Well, I'll, I'll go down a rabbit trail. I'll just, I'll just leave that alone. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, we are. God's grace and His mercy are very wonderful. Um, I would, I would say as we close up here that um, I, I really would strongly encourage you to read some of the actual writings, go to the sources. Um, it's one of the things that's helped. I, uh, this year I read Augustine's City of God. Um, I'm reading Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Um, trying to, you know, read some of the original sources, and you really start hearing 
some of their thoughts and um, the development of theology and doctrine. And um, But with stuff like this, there's some really interesting stuff buried in here, um, the stories you can read. I didn't read the story that he shares of, of uh, Simeon, a guy in the, uh, I believe he's in the 5th century, right before Benedict, that goes out to the desert, starts building a pillar, and lives on top the pillar, and then every once in a while he adds like another layer to the pillar, and he does this for decades and never comes down. And what he says is, is as crazy as that sounds, and like, so he had so many people coming out to him that admired him um, and followed him that he, he had that he would send down a bucket and then they would replace that bucket with food, just bare minimum for him to stay alive. But that's where he, that's what he did. Um, but he also is the guy that gave his seal of approval on, uh, he gave his seal of approval to the, uh, Council of uh, Chalcedon that we talked about last time, and because he did that, it helped people to believe that it must be a true statement. So what Mark Knoll was saying in the book was to understand, the that was the motivation part of the the chapter, was to understand where people were. They were really desiring something deeper with God, and clearly if a guy's living on top of a pillar uh, out in the middle of the wilderness here, this guy's clearly in their minds at that time, serious about God. In our day, we would just send a helicopter out and take him to probably a mental institution is probably what would happen, right? Uh, we wouldn't, <laughs> a guy living on a pillar in the middle of the wilderness. But anyway, there's a lot of those really interesting stories that you can go discover for yourselves and learn together lots of interesting things. Okay. We are going to be dismissed. Let me pray, and we'll be done. Father God, we thank you again uh, this evening um, for your word that we were able to look at and for the history we were able to discuss. And we ask, Lord, again, that you would use it to help us to be closer to you, to understand your word more, again, to recognize how fortunate we are to have had years and years of church behind us that help us to understand historically what you've done throughout the ages. God, we thank you. We give you glory. Help us apply it to our life, I pray, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.